Hi, this is Pastor JC. I want to thank you for listening to today's podcast here at Faith Outreach Church. We want to invite you anytime you're in the area to come by and visit us at 3001 Wallace Avenue here in Terre Haute, Indiana. Sit back and enjoy today's message. Come out tonight. Praise God. It's good to be here. Good to see Pastor Jesse. God bless you. We've been praying for you and we are believing we are receiving. Completeness of that which God uh, desires to do. Praise God. Well, we're glad you're here. I think that each time we uh, gather, we'll share a little bit about our lives and what we do. Uh, we pastor in Galveston, Texas, as we said this morning. We've been there for uh, 18 years. Before that, we traveled for 18 years. And a uh, very unique situation in our lives in that uh, at the end of 18 years of ministry, of traveling, uh, we were really poised to really just take off to another level. We owned our own building. We had staff. We were fixing to purchase an airplane because we had so many meetings. We were doing at least for the last 10 years, we were in active field ministry. We were doing 300 meetings a year. That's, yeah, it is. It's, that's a lot. I look back on it today and I think, how did we do that? Well, God gives you grace for, for whatever he calls you to do. And five years before we shut down RMM, which was Rusty Martin Ministries, uh, the Lord began to speak to me about uh, starting a church, pioneering a church, and, you know, I thought it was the devil. And I, began, <laughs> I began to bind the devil. I didn't, but we used to always say, Lee and I, as we traveled, we said, there's two things we'll never do. Uh, one is we'll never, ever pastor a church, and two, we'll never have children. And people would say, well, why don't, we have, why don't you want to have children? It's because we see your children, and because of that, <laughs> we will never have children. But today, we have an 18-year-old church and a 19-year-old daughter. So, never say never, because within the confines of your never may be the will of God. Amen. So, God dealt with us, and I believe it was in uh, 2002, we uh, shut down all field ministry. We had, uh, man, we had invitations all over the the world. We were going to be, I asked him how far Columbus, Ohio was from here, because Pastor Rod Parsley wanted us to come do a series of meetings for him. And we had to say no to all of that. I mean, it was, it was, that was not easy to do. But we did it, and we obeyed God, and God has blessed our church. Uh, we have seen a great growth. We've seen a, a great destruction. Uh, we were destroyed in 2008. A hurricane named Ike came through. Uh, our city, Galveston, uh, before Ike, was approximately about the size of Terre Haute. It was uh, 60,000 people in the city. After Ike, we were a city of about 42,000. So we lost over a third of our church. That, you know, they didn't, there wasn't a church split. They just, it was a hurricane split. <laughs> Amen. I mean, you lose your house and your, and your business and your job. You got to go somewhere else to start over. And God supernaturally uh, restored us. It was an amazing phenomenon. Uh, we had five feet of water in our church. But that's not, you know, you think of five feet of water in this building. But that's five feet of moving salt water. And I'm telling you, it can bring great destruction. And, you know, we had been a church for uh, seven years, approximately seven years. And every year as a church, your pastors know very well. You buy an insurance package. You cover your pastors. You cover the property. Uh, there we, we have to buy flood insurance. That year, uh, for one reason or another, flood insurance was not rolled into our policy. So we're stuck with half a million dollars worth of flood damage and no insurance whatsoever. And our first bill that we paid for cleanup took all of our money. Every dime, it was $30,000 uh, 
Uh, that was all of our accounts combined went out the door in one check. But that was supernatural because we paid a $120,000 bill with $30,000. And so we looked into government help. We looked into uh, different things. And we just made a decision to believe God for a miracle. At our Fall Harvest Conference that year, we took all of that uh, paperwork and we tore it up in front of the church. And we said, we're going to believe God for a miracle. And from then till, till uh, uh, Easter Sunday of 2009, we had over $350,000 of cash come in. But that, that's, that's a great hallelujah. But God did other miracles that were just outstanding. Uh, one of the ones we like to tell about is the dehumidifier miracle. Uh, at that time, uh, when you have a building that's inundated with water, you have to tear everything out. All of your electrical comes out. All of your sheetrock comes out. Uh, all of the plugs, everything comes out. And then you have to dry the building. And to dry the building, you have to put in what's called dehumidifiers. Dehumidifiers were leasing for uh, $200 an hour. And we needed 20 of them for two weeks. So you do the math on that. That's, that's a lot of money. And so we were just praying and believing God. And we got a phone call from the city of Galveston. And they said, we have a company that wants to bring uh, several hundred dehumidifiers into the city and they want to know if they can store them in your church. And we said, sure, as long as we can plug them in. And they said, plug in all you want. So we dried that church out. It was as dry as a potato chip when we got finished with that. And uh, glory to God, we just, God did miracle after miracle after miracle. We had a man come uh, from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Every week he came, uh, got, got, when he got off of his job, he would leave at his lunch hour on Friday. He would come to Galveston. He would work all day Saturday, all day Sunday, half a day on Monday, and go home on Monday. Well, at the end of his tenure, he wouldn't let us pay him. He wouldn't let us give us anything. At the end of his work, and he did all kinds of stuff in our building, helping to restore it. At the end, in a Wednesday night meeting, the Spirit of the Lord moved in that meeting, and God called him to missions ministry. And him and his family have been in missions ministry in Australia ever since that day. So it's a powerful thing. God can do tremendous things no matter how uh, uh, bad the crisis may look, always remember it's an opportunity for God to show himself strong and to give us the supernatural and the miraculous uh, that, that we desire. Our daughter's name is Breland. Uh, she's at home with us uh, right now. She was a wonderful, uh, I, I don't know, I, I can't take the credit for raising her. She's just a great kid. She works in our church. Uh, she graduated high school with honors. She does have a desire to go to Oral Roberts University, but we don't, so... She's at home taking care of our zoo. Our zoo consists of Cookie, our Labrador Retriever, two weenie dogs named Freckles and Luna, and an African gray parrot named Snoopy. So our house is quite a place to visit. Glory to God. But it's good to be in Terre Haute, Indiana, and we're very honored to be with you and your pastors this week. We believe it, it is of God. It's ordained of God, and we trust by the end of the week. We're going we're gonna to know that, and we're going to experience that. Amen? Amen? Praise God. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 17. As we were studying uh, some of the, some of the, how can I say this? Some of the ruthless activity of fear and how it tries to dominate, not just a believer, but, you know, the world and people and everything else. And uh, a couple of my notes I can read pretty plain, plainly now. Uh, many of the dramas that the enemy tries to manifest in our lives, both in physical attack, uh, attacks against churches, families, businesses, 
many of them, the enemy wants us to carry a mindset of these, of these dramas being unconquerable and impossible. And literally, that's what had happened to the army of Israel as they were in that valley of Eli. 40 days and 40 nights of this visual and audio presentation of this giant challenging them had created literally an un unconquerable, impossible situation. Uh, they, they were stuck. And so they had no way out. The Bible says that they were uh, dismayed. They were greatly, uh, greatly afraid. One translation said they had given up all hope. And, and, and the adversary, as he always does, he has this ability to magnify problems greater than they really are. That's why you've got to really be careful. Listen, let me just encourage you as a church. I know you've got wonderful pastors, and since I, I pastor, I, I do the same thing at my church. Be careful. We used to sing a little song in the Assemblies of God. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Remember that song? Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful. Be careful what you allow to come into your information gates. You don't need to be sitting in front of a computer or a television set allowing yourself to be saturated with all of the news of the hour and of the day. Let me tell you something. It will taint your thinking when it comes to faith, and it will open a door many times for fear to go, you know, fear, oh, are we going to become a communist nation? Is there going to be a civil war? Is COVID going to kill everyone? Listen, you've got to get that purged out of your mind, and you've got to live meditating, concentrating. We like to say it like this at Island Church. You need to read you need to study, you need to meditate, you need to have the word taught and preached to you on a continual, constant basis. There needs to be a continual flow. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to begin teaching on prayer, uh, praying the word of God. How you need to, every day, people many times call, well, that's just confession. It's not confession. It's literally praying. The, it's communicating to God His word and God communicating back to you the affirmation of that word which you're speaking out to Him. It has to be audible. There has to be some passion in it. There has to be some strength coming from your own heart. The Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of righteous men and women, Amplified says, makes great power available, dynamic in its working. Now, other than that, you know, I know that uh, with, with Pastor Jesse, y'all have gone through some, some trials here. We've all gone through the, the, the trial and tribulation of, uh, of seeing what this disease has done. Especially, I'm very, uh, 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 how can I say this? I'm very suspicious of how it has uh, uh, affected churches. About, you know, many of the states in our nation, churches still don't meet. Uh, some of the mega churches in our area, none of, they have never gotten back together. Uh, uh, the great, uh, I guess, largest church in our nation, Lakewood Church, which I, I'm, a, I'm part of the fruit of Lakewood Church, uh, still has not gathered. They will not begin holding services, they believe, till all, uh, October the 18th. And uh, there's a lot of churches that have shut down. Uh, a lot of ministries have gone, uh, have gone, uh, have not, many of them have retired, taken early retirement, did different things. But here's the good news in Terre Haute, Indiana. You're still here. You still have pastors, you still have vision, you still have a building, so there's still a purpose in you gathering and having meetings and praying together, being in agreement. There's a purpose for you in this church, and in order to achieve that purpose, God has sent us to help teach and preach just a little bit while we're here to help get you down the road of that and help to encourage you that you are something that God is doing. You are something that God is stirring in the midst of this area, and you are going to be used by God in these last of the last days. 
We are in the last of the last days. It doesn't really take a, you know, a person teaching on end times to come and show us that. It's obvious in the world that we're in the last of the last days. This year for us was going to be a, be a very uh, international year. We had, uh, uh, we, had a, uh, we had a conference scheduled in Ireland. I preached in the Republic of Ireland. I began to, to teach and preach in the Republic of Ireland in 1988. And uh, this is not North Ireland, not Belfast. North, this is the Republic, Dublin and Athlone and Dundalk and all those. I know them like, the, like I know my name. And when we went to Ireland in 1988, we found nothing. There was nothing in Ireland that you would know or you would be familiar with as a believer. There was a small remnant of a Catholic charismatic movement that we began to teach and minister to. And by the time we were finished, we had churches, we had conferences in which thousands of people were coming, and we had a great outpouring. We experienced a great revival in the nation of Ireland. And then it kind of it had a bump in the road. Some people in the you know, religious people uh, began a blog, began to attack uh, faith as we know it, began to attack especially the prosperity message, different things like that. I think the, 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 the prosperity message is very vulnerable to attack if people don't preach it right. Amen. You've got to teach it and preach it right. Nobody, everybody's not supposed to be flying a jet airplane. Everybody's not supposed to be living in a mansion. But everybody should be blessed of the Lord. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But we thought we were through with Ireland. And when we began to pastor Island Church, we didn't really see ourselves being involved much in international ministry. Uh, there were a few doors that were open, but we just concentrated on a pastor in the church. But in 2014, we were invited to a conference there, and we felt in our spirit we should go. And all those people that that uh, uh, we had two speakers that were with us that were much more well-known than we were in the States, but not in Ireland. And when my night came to preach on Friday night, that whole place was full of people that had known us for all those years we had preached. And so we just really uh, began to pray again over the nation of Ireland. And God sent a couple to our church, and they came to our church. They were there five years. And they asked to meet with us in the office, and they said, you know, we came to this church because we heard uh, that you ministered in Ireland, and we have a heart uh, to start a church in Ireland. And so we helped them do that. Now we have Island Church, Galveston, Texas, and we have Island Church, Dundalk, Ireland. So we had a great conference planned uh, for Ireland uh, in which uh, several churches were cooperating with. We had to cancel that. Uh, I had a meeting in Turkey. I was going to go hold a National Holy Ghost Conference uh, in Turkey. And uh, right there, starting in, Ant in actual the biblical Antioch, we were going to begin there in the church there, then go to the center of Turkey. And then we had, of course, two, our two summer camp meetings, our, our, our uh, missions conference and camp meeting that we always are ministering in, which is Fire for the Nations, where we met your pastor, and uh, Freedom Crusade in Shreveport, Louisiana. Those were canceled. And then uh, in October, we were supposed to be in uh, Manila in the Philippines, in a large New Life conference in which over 420-something churches were going to participate with. And we had to cancel that because in the Philippines, they still have not had the first service. Their churches are still shut down. So there is a very cynical uh, angle to all of this. But the good news is, in the midst of that, we're seeing people beginning to serve God like they've never served God before. And I believe if I could leave anything in this church, when I leave here on Friday morning and drive back to... Uh, to Indianapolis and we get on a plane and fly back to Houston. Listen, I hope I leave a stirring in this church in which everyone in this church will make a decision in their heart to step up to another level to serve God. You say, well, I, I, I'm too young, I'm too... My dad, my dad goes to our church, he's 88 years old. 
My dad is the consummate, how can I say this, the consummate charismatic attorney. He was everybody's lawyer. John Osteen's lawyer, Kenneth E. Hagan's lawyer. He was on the executive board of Teen Challenge with David Wilkerson. You name the big name preacher, my dad was his lawyer. And so he has stepped up to another level of serving God. He's in our, we have an intercessory prayer meeting every night, a powerful prayer meeting that God is trying. He's there every night. God's using him. I mean, uh, using him in tongues and interpretation of tongues. And he's 88 years old, still works, still goes to the office every day, still is alive and serving God. Amen. So this is a day, this is an hour to come alive, to come alive in faith, to come alive in prayer and intercession, for this church to be stirred like never before, and for you to burst into the new year of 2021 with increase, momentum, and purpose in your midst. Amen. Praise God. So we're in 1 Samuel 17. We went through all this drama that this guy, Goliath, he's up there, he's challenging the, uh, uh, the nation of Israel uh, it is a very dire challenge. If you defeat me, then we will be your servants. But if we defeat you, you will go into slavery. We will be your masters, you will be our slaves, and you will serve us. But then on the scene comes a very unique individual, just a little shepherd boy. Most theologians, if you study or read much uh, 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 biblical commentary, they will say that David was probably around 17 years old, between 7 and 19. Most agree he was around 17 years old. He had been working for Saul, for the king. Uh, uh, he was the one that came in and refreshed him, played his, played his harp, sang psalms when, when, when Saul was attacked by demon forces because of his sin and rebellion. And after that, he, he became or he showed his character in being a responsible individual, leaving Saul's court when there was nothing left to do, going back to his father and tending sheep. We made the statement that many times in the kingdom, uh, uh, promotion looks like a step down. But many times what it is is a step up. You just got to hang around long enough for it to happen. Amen. And then he left his sheep with a keeper when he, he was given parental instruction to go to the battle. Then when he got to the battle, he left his carriage in the hands of the keeper. And we'll pick it up there because then the battle begins. Now, I was going to go to something else tonight. And as I was kind of taking a nap, laying there and praying and meditating, the Lord said, no, go back and tell this to the church. God wants you to become confrontational in your faith. Now, I've, I've taught this for years, and I don't know how, I, I don't know how well, I, I guess my report card will be given when I get to heaven. But one of the key principles of what I like to teach and preach is this. Don't wait around for something to happen to you in which you used to ha in which you have to use your faith to recover from. That's going to happen to all of us. Let me say that again. Don't sit around and wait for something to happen that you have to use your faith to recover from. You say, now wait a minute, Pastor. I thought that's what faith was for. Certainly it is. God has given us precious promises in the Word of God that through the Word of God, by the Word of God, we are partakers of the divine nature. But faith should be aggressive. Faith should be every day. Faith should not be a, a spiritual product that sits upon the shelf that when you get the bad doctor's report or, or a bad report from the bank or, or something goes wrong at the job or in the family, well, I need to get my faith out and use it. No, you should be living a life of faith. Every day there should be an aggression in you. You say, well, pastor, if I don't have any needs, what do I use my faith for? To possess. To possess that which God says belongs to you. Actually, faith works best in the atmosphere of aggression. 
where you go out and you get what belongs to you. Jesus said it like this. He says, the kingdom of God suffereth violence, but the violent take it. There are some things you're just going to have to take. You just can't sit around and wait. Well, praise the Lord if I ever get attacked physically. Well, I've got some faith I can. No, no. You should every day, every day we teach Island Church. Every day speak the word over your health. Every day speak the word over your body. Every day speak the word over your finances. Every day speak words of redemption. Because I tell you, the first person that hears the words that come out of your mouth is you. And it's amazing how you can build a spiritual mojo, I like to call it, in your own heart of speaking the word, hearing the word, speaking the word, hearing the word, speaking the word, hearing the word. And I guarantee you when you do that, it will become a powerful force in your life. We're going to teach on that in the morning. But here comes David. Let me find it here. He left the carriage in the hand of the keeper. Let's go to verse 23. And as he talked with them, or talked with the, those that he came up to, he said, there came up a champion of the, of the Philistine of Gath, Goliath, by name, out of the armies of the Philistine. Now notice, and spake according to the same words. That's what he had been speaking for 40 days. Now notice this, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were sore afraid. Now, he's saying the same thing that he had been saying for 40 days, and he says it, but the difference is David is there now. But remember this, these guys had been conditioned for 40 days. Listen, there is an element of repetition to conditioning. I don't know, know if you know that or not, but it, I, I, like, uh, I like Labrador retrievers. I, I think they're, the, especially when they're puppies, but you know, they grow up and they become dogs. Now, we, Lee and I, since Lee and I have been married, I've trained uh, three Labrador Retrievers. I'm a, I like to duck hunt. I don't know. I must have got them molested by a duck when I was a child or something. But this, this, this November will be my 48th opening day of duck season, and I usually hunt anywhere from 15 to 20 times a year. So I like, we like, I'm married to a Cajun. She, when I married her, we got the webs removed from her toes, and, and uh, she likes duck, amen. So we, we eat ducks. That's why we hunt as well. Anyway, I've trained these retrievers and, and one, a book I read years ago when I first started, actually when I was in Bible school, when I was training my first lab, sugar. We had sugar, then we have honey, now we have cookies. So you can tell we like sweets, amen. So when we were training sugar, I read a book called Water Dog and Water Dog said this. He said, if you're willing to invest a year in a dog through repetition every day, five to 10 minutes a day, you'll have a great dog the rest of your life. And he wasn't saying that just for those that raise uh, dogs to, to, to waterfowl hunt. He says for any dog, any dog that you get, if you're willing to, to invest one year of repetition of five to 15 minutes a day, you'll have the greatest dog you ever have because repetition conditions. It's the same way in the human family as it is in the canine family. Repetition will condition you. This 40 days of this constant bombardment of a, of a visual and audio attack was beginning to condition this army. This army for 40 days had been without hope. They'd been dismayed and greatly afraid. Now let me say this. Do not let any current condition in your life train you. I don't care what kind of routine of medicine or what kind of routine in your finances or any type of routine you have to go through. Don't let a negative drama of life train you. Because it will not train you well. It will train you for defeat. It will train you for enslavement and it will train you to be subject to that particular thing. So you have to make a decision to break the repetition of whatever it is you're fighting 
and allow faith to rise up in your heart and become aggressive, or I like to use the word confrontational. Everybody say confrontation. Now, I don't, I don't, a lot of people don't like confrontation because confrontation is not comfortable. I don't know if you've ever had to confront anybody. You know, as a field minister, I, I, one of the reasons I, didn't, I never wanted to pastor a church is because I preached in churches and I knew pastors. And I thought, I don't ever want to do that. You know, I mean, I would be there with the pastors at lunch and they would talk about having this confrontation with this person or this confrontation with a bank during a building pro or this or that. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, you know. I mean, all I had to do was get on airplanes, go to hotel rooms, pray, get up and preach. That was easy. But when I started pastoring, I didn't realize that people actually come to churches. They're made up of people. People have issues and people like to confront you with those issues. And then there's been people that had issues that I had to confront them. So I found out real quick that confrontation is not comfortable, amen? And sometimes it's not very easy. But every one of these men, now this is something I, I didn't remember to say this this morning, but I do wanna uh, uh, rehearse it to you tonight. This conditioning of 40 days of this visual and audio attack against their minds, because this is what this was. That nobody had gotten killed by Goliath yet. Nobody had lost anything to Goliath yet. Everything that was going on in this battle was going on in the minds of this army. That's where it was going on. Amen? And you've got to realize that confrontation many times will reinforce that either fear or faith in your mind. And you've got to make a decision in your own heart to take the word and become confrontational. Instead of just recovering from something, press in and overcome it. That, there's a difference. You say, why, why, what do you mean there's a difference? With sickness and disease, I, I've, I've fought several, several sicknesses, disease, injuries in my life. And every one of them, now I've had to, I always do what I call, I pray about my path of healing. You know, there are times in which God will say, stand in faith, period. Other times which God will say, go to the doctor. I remember Lee and I were first married. I'd come home, I was in, uh, just beginning to do these, uh, these types of meetings where we would go Sunday through Wednesday. I came home from one, had this pain in my side. Then I came home, I was laying on the bed and, and man, it, my side was hurting and, and this voice spoke into my spirit and said, you have appendicitis. I said, you lying devil, I bind you. I'm the heel of God. I began to quote healing scriptures and about uh, an hour later, man, that thing was even worse and I, uh, something said to me, uh, it's appendicitis, get up and go to the hospital. I said, you lying devil, I bind you in the name of Jesus. I'm not going to the hospital. I'm not gonna have appendicitis. I'm the heel of God. At noon, I was doubled up on the bed. The voice spoke to me and again and said, it's appendicitis, go to the hospital. I said, yes, Lord. <laughs> so there, the, every one of us have paths of healing in different areas, but there's been a couple of times when the Lord has said to me, now you stand in faith. Now you stand in faith. Now those times have been times in which confrontation afforded me great strength in order to stand in faith for healing in my body. It works the same way with, with, with finances. It works the same way with any issue that you're fighting. You've got to just make a decision in your own heart. It may go against your nature. You may be more passive in nature, but you've got to make a decision. When it comes to faith, I'm going to be aggressive and I'm going to be confrontational no matter how, no matter how uncomfortable it may be or no matter how ugly it may get. 
I'm going to be confrontational and I'm not going to try and get God to do something for me. I'm going to take what he has already done for me and I'm going to confront this situation with it and I'm going to walk in the over, overwhelming power of that word in order to overcome it. So here comes David and he sees the same thing. Now he hadn't been conditioned so he has a different response. Now notice. And all the men of Israel, this is in verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defile Israel he has come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches, will give him his daughter, and will make his father's house free in Israel. That means, that means daddy doesn't have to pay taxes anymore. Wouldn't that be great, amen? Hallelujah. Then David spoke unto the men, spoke to the men that stood by him, saying, What should be done uh, to the man that killeth the Philistine? Now notice this, and taketh away the reproach from Israel. Now notice that, let me, let me zero on that just for a moment. And taketh away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, we hear in this, we hear aggression and we hear confrontation. We hear a militant voice. Now, let me say something. Don't you ever accept any attack against your life, a physical attack, a financial attack, any kind of attack against your life as being just, well, that's just life. Don't ever do that. You are a child of God. You have a covenant with God through the blood of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, it is not natural for us to be broken poor. It is not natural for us to be sick and afflicted. It is not natural for us to be oppressed and depressed. It, it, we, naturally, we should be what? Strong in the Lord and the power of His might. And anything that comes against that ought to flip a switch in you. It ought to ignite your righteous indignation. If you were ever an angry or a mad person, you ought to channel that anger and aggression against your adversary by the Word of God and refuse it. I mean, if they're wheeling you in to do an operation on you in which you only have a 2% chance to live, you ought to be worshiping and praising and glorifying God and thanking God that you are the healed of God no matter how abstract it may sound, no matter how abstract it may look. <laughs> I forgot about this. They, they were wheeling a, a, a friend of ours, a pastor, pastor and his wife, they were wheeling the, wheeling the wife into surgery in Waco, Texas. She had a potato-sized tumor in her brain. They had found. And so we had been ministering to them and praying with them. And so her daughter, Stacy, had, had dialed my number as they were going down the, going down the hall to the, to the surgery room. <laughs> and so uh, uh, Linda, Miss Linda Ayer, she, she, she had the phone and she said, I just wanted to speak the word to someone and I know you would be the one that would agree with me. 
And she just started speaking healing scriptures, speaking healing scriptures, speaking healing scriptures. Because they were saying, well, it's going to be malignant. It's going to be this and that. Well, they went and took that thing out and it was not malignant. It was nothing what they thought it was. It was just some kind of benign thing that had grown up in her brain. They took it out and she literally recovered supernaturally. They said she would be years recovering. She would be months before she could walk and she walked two days after she got out. That's aggressive. That's confrontational. Don't let the devil bring the fight to you. You take the fight to the devil. Now notice. It says in verse 27, and the people answered him after the same manner, so shall it be done to the man that killeth him. Now notice this. Verse 29, and Elib, his eldest brother, when he heard, when he, uh, his eldest brother heard when he spake unto the men, and Elib's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why camest thou hither? Uh, with whom hast thou left uh, those few sheep in the wilderness. I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thy heart, for thou hast come down that thou might see the battle. Now, listen, here's a good indication. And this always stumps people because they, they, when it happens, they think they're, they're, not, they're, not, they're not doing right. Any aggressive posture that you take in faith, any confrontational faith that you muster, and this is how you know, there's your, here's your indicator. You're not going to get some warm, fuzzy feeling from God or a great thus saith the Lord. What you're going to get is opposition. And opposition comes in all types. In this type, it came from his own brother. Now, you, you imagine these brothers probably already had an issue with David because y'all remember the big banquet back in uh, chapter, what is it, chapter 14. And when Samuel, the prophet, comes to Jesse's house, oh boy, we're going to have a banquet. Everybody put on your best. Elab, Abinadab, Shama, all you, but David, you go out and take care of the sheep. Amen? So they're having this banquet, they're having this celebration. David's out there taking care of the sheep and he's taking that anointing. I don't know if you've ever read the, the commentary on how they anointed back then, how the prophets did it. But they had, a, they had a, 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 a thing of anointing oil that had like a stem, the bottle had a stem on it and there was a wax plug in that bottle and they would hold it over the person to be anointed and if that wax was not supernaturally melted by the Holy Ghost, it wasn't the person. So they went over to Abinadab, over to over to Elam, and they held it up, and the wax didn't melt. They did it to Shama, the wax didn't the wax didn't. They did it to Elam. They went all the way down the line, and the wax didn't melt. And he said to Jesse, "You got any others around here?" He said, "Well, the youngest son, but you know, youngest is uh, basically the youngest son is basically the chief slave or the chief servant. We'll call him." So he comes in, and Samuel takes that anointed bottle and holds it over David, and it supernaturally melts, and all that anointing oil goes all over him, and instead of smelling like sheep, he smells like the anointing. He smells like he's chosen. So they've already got drama in the family. And when that manifests, it manifests at the worst possible time. It manifests at a time in which there should be agreement. But remember what we said this morning? When that giant got up and said, give me a man, he separated him. He divided them. That's what the adversary is. He is an adversary of division. He wants to bring division to families, which is divorce, and he wants to bring division to churches. That's why when you get in a church like this, when you need to fight to stay here, not fight to leave, fight to stay in your church. Fight to support your path. The, the, the most incredible phenomenon I've ever seen, not only did I see it when I was in field ministry, but also seen it uh, in our own church, that if everybody that ever supposed to come to the church showed up, we'd have to have church in the parking lot. 
People get offended. People get weak. People get all these dramas going on. Well, I believe God's calling me somewhere else. No, He's not. Where is there somewhere else where they teach that a, that a lost man needs to be saved? That, that, a, that, that, that a saved man needs to be empowered and grow up in the things of God. That a sick man can be healed. That an oppressed man or woman can be delivered. That anybody that has any problems wrong, that God is so powerful that nothing is impossible with him. Where else do they teach that? Where else do they preach that? Well, not everywhere. This is unique in the world today. So here's David. Man. David said, verse 29, what have I now done? Now notice this, is there not a cause? Now we can go in, if we were doing this in a Bible school setting, we would pull out from the scripture itself the cause of why David was there. Of course this cause, there was a national cause, there was a, there was a personal cause, there was a family cause, there was many causes that had to do with David. But since we're here in Terre Haute, and we're teaching and preaching to you. What about your cause? What a, well, Pastor, you're talking about us stepping up to another level and serving God. You're talking about us stepping up. You're talking about us using our faith in a greater measure. You're talking about us praying more. You're talking about us giving more. You're talking about us coming to church more. You're talking about us evangelizing. You're talking about the activity of what we do as people that serve God coming up to a great level. Exactly. Because there is a cause. Now, at Island Church, we say it like this. We do this because when you go to hell, it's forever. See, the weight of that really doesn't weigh very much in churches anymore. You know, in, in, on our island, we have a huge teaching hospital. University of Texas Medical Branch is a huge teaching where, where, where we've got doctors and nurses and people that have come through our churches, uh, church before that have uh, trained to go into the medical profession. Uh, we have a huge... Uh, uh, Marine Biology College, Texas A&M. They're, they're on, the, uh, on the island. We have several uh, large insurance companies, American Indemnity and American National Insurance Company. So we have uh, uh, companies and businesses on the island that are doing very important work. They're insuring, uh, they're studying our oceans, uh, they're discovering new medical techniques, they're doing, and that's all very important work. But all of it ministers to a temporal situation. Only one thing ministers to the eternal situation, and that is the church. That's why the church must become aggressive. That's why the church must become militant. You say, why? Number one, the cause, the day and the hour demand it. Now this is, this is a, I shared this with our church I grew up in a church that was very unique. It was a church that was the, the forerunner of the charismatic move. The charismatic movement really began and started in this church. Our pastors were very powerful, used by God in the, in the gifts of the Spirit in a very unique way. And we saw tremendous, tremendous revival, outbreaks of revival in that church that happened all the time. Uh, men like Kenneth e. Hagan would come to our church twice a year teach and preach. Brother John Osteen that, that founded Lakewood Church was baptized in the Holy Ghost in our pastor's living room in 1958. We began to attend the church in, in, uh, in 1961. And, and, and what was unique about all of that, I lost my train of thought, I'll get it back in a minute. What was unique about all of that is that many times in these very intense anointed services where the power of God was just in such awesome manifestation. These prophecies would go forth. Tongues, interpretation of tongues, and prophecies. And many of them had to do with this one subject. Jesus is coming back soon. Now that was in the, throughout the 60s and into the early 70s. Jesus is coming back soon. 
Jesus is coming back soon. Well, back then, you know, people that taught on eschatology, different things like that, it was, you know, a lot of tea. But in 1967, I, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was in my grandmother's trailer house. She was ironing. She used to taking ironing for people. And she was an expert uh, with needle and thread. She sewed. She was, I don't know if you've ever heard of a reweaver. You ever heard of a reweaver? She, uh, one of the things that, that really impressed me, she took a coat like this that belonged to a detective in the uh, Houston Police Department that had a bullet hole in it. And she was able to match that thread and reweave that hole and sew that back up where you couldn't even tell that hole was there. So she was an expert with the needle and thread. So she took in cleaning and took in sewing. And she's sitting there ironing in her trailer house. My grandfather was off at work. And there's this little black and white TV and, and with, a, you know, with, a, with a coat hanger as, a, as, a, as an antenna trying to get the picture. And, and the, you could see the soldiers running up the street of Jerusalem and, and shucking their, 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 their military gear off, laying their weapons down and laying on the wailing wall and praying. Israel had retaken Jerusalem. Well, my grandmother was an intercessor. She was a woman that prayed four hours a day. She started, I was just a little boy. She started screaming. I was 11 years old. She started screaming in that trailer house, Jesus is coming back. I thought, right now. I mean, I thought any minute he's fixing to come back. Now, I got away from the Lord when I was about 14 years old. And I was away from God for approximately 12 years. And I knew, I knew a lot that we know today. I knew about faith. I knew about healing. I knew about demons. I knew about devils. I got away from God. I got into drugs. I got into all kinds of bad lifestyle. But the one phrase that haunted me and haunted me and haunted me and haunted me more than any other phrase was this phrase. Jesus is coming back soon. Jesus is coming back soon. And in prayer... The latter part of 2019, the Lord spoke to me and said this, Jesus is coming back soon. And when he said it, it was in a way that I'd never heard it before in the spirit. So I know in my spirit there is a cause. There are thousands of people here in Terre Haute, Indiana, in this region, that if we don't do what we're supposed to do, they're going to die and they're going to go to hell. And hell is forever. And see, we don't really preach the scripture like we should. We were acquainted with a, with a powerful man of God named Dr. Lester Summerall. We were, uh, did some meetings with him and knew him over the years. And he would always preach that message. And he would always present this to churches out of Ezekiel. And he'd say, now listen, you must understand that those people that die and go to hell that we don't reach, that we are supposed to reach, their blood is on our hands. See, we don't say that anymore. That's not popular to say that. But it's the truth. We have a responsibility to this community. Yes, there is a cause. There is a cause for you to be totally healed and set free. There is a top cause for this church to grow and prosper. There is a cause for you to become more on fire for God than you've never been on fire before. First of all, there is the big picture of what's going on in this world. Jesus is fixing to come back. Second, there's the national cause. Now, I'm not political. I'm not going to get up here and say you need to vote for this person or that person. But let me tell you something. There are things working in our country that are trying to manifest and come online that will not be conducive to church. I don't want to be an underground pastor. I don't want to have to take the move of God underground. Listen, we're going to do anything that we have to do to preach the gospel and demonstrate it to people. But I don't want to have to live under an oppressive government that does not allow me the freedom to preach the gospel the way I've done it for 36 years. Amen? So there's a, there's a national cause. Then there's the local cause. What about your family? What about your loved ones? What about your friend? 
your hunting buddy, your fishing buddy, the person you go to ball game, whoever it is that's dear to you that does not know Jesus yet, that really needs to see Christ in you more than they need to hear what you have to say. I like what one guy said. He said, preach Christ everywhere you go and when necessary, use words. People have watched you for years. They've wondered, is this really real? Well, they need to begin to see now. There's no fear in you. There's no, uh, you know, anything in you that's, that's oppressed right now, that you're free from all of this that's going on, that you're, you have joy in the Lord, that, that, that you're uh, living the life that you're supposed to. People are going to begin to see that like never before, and they're going to be drawn to God because of God in you. There's a cause. Everybody said there's a cause. Then what about the cause of your family? Your sons, your daughters, your grandchildren. Amen? Your sons, your daughters, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your aunts, your uncles, your, your immediate family. There's a cause. That's why you should come up to another level. Live for God like you've never lived before. Get on fire for the Lord. Then there's your own personal cause. What about you? What about you? You've been privileged by God to be alive in the last of the last days. I'm telling you, people talk about, oh, it's such a price to serve God. Don't, don't buy into that garbage. The price, you should have seen the price I was paying not to serve God. Amen? It is a privilege to serve the master, the creator of the universe. What a privilege to serve God. So there is a cause. Everybody say, there is a cause. There is a cause. You say, what is the cause? The cause is to be confrontational. The cause is to be aggressive. The cause is to step forward. Listen, they'll tell you this in football. The guy that stays on offense is going to win the game. They'll tell you this, that in, you watch a boxing match. The guy that's moving forward, he's going to win the match. That's just the way it is. The aggression is always the winner. Don't let your adversary be the aggressor. Verse 30, and he turned from him and spake to another, spake after the same manner. People answered after the former matter. And when the words which were, which, which, which were heard, which David spake, they were rehearsed before Saul, and he sent for him. Now you say, well, how did that happen? Well, the whole place had been divided because of this, because of this, uh, this big giant, and everybody was probably accusing each other of not going out and fighting, calling each other a coward. So things were running through the camp pretty quick. Now notice this. Saul sent for him. The king sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because, now notice this, because of him, thy servant, so he sees himself in the light of a servant. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said to Saul, thy servant, see, he sees himself as a servant. Thy servant kept his father's sheep and there came a lion and a bear and took a, lion out of, uh, took a lamb out of the flock. Now notice this, verse 35. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered him out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them. Now notice this. Seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said moreover, the Lord that delivered me. Now listen to this. We've got to get back into this posture. He said a lion came, a bear came, and I did something. 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 And when I did something, my God did something. 
Maybe it's not us waiting on God to do something. Maybe it's us doing something. I know people say, I don't know, I'm just kind of waiting on the Lord. Well, you may have waited too long. It may be time to step out. Listen, and here's, I've, I've taught faith for years, Bible school settings, conferences, crusades. People are so afraid of failure. Well, Pastor Rusty, and what if I just step out and do what I think I'm saying, and it fails? Who cares? Everything you've ever learned in life, you've learned through the element of failure. Nothing you've ever learned. You didn't jump on a bicycle and just take off down. You took a few bloody knees and elbows. Everything you've ever learned, you've learned through the element of failure. It's been mixed into it because by failing, you've learned what not to do and you end up succeeding. Why is it with spiritual things, a person has one little hiccup in the spirit and they throw everything down, throw all their faith books down, leave the church and go join some dead church that doesn't even believe in the power of God. I've seen it happen over and over and over. Who cares? Listen, if you get a thousand no's, all you need is one yes to destroy the power of a thousand no's it only takes one yes. And if you'll stay with it and stick with it, you will get your yes even though there's a thousand no's. Amen? I serve it. Flew both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them seen at the five, the armies of the living God. David said moreover, now notice, he's not, he's not exalting himself. The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will, not well, I hope he will. Well, we're trusting him too. Well, we'll see what happens. No, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine and Saul said unto David, go, the Lord be with thee. What? Now, wait a second, Saul, you've got generals, you've got colonels, you've got majors, you've got captains, you've got enlisted men, you've got you've got experience, and you're giving the authority of our entire nation over to a guy who showed up with two bags of groceries? <laughs> Amen? Why did he do that? Because of what David said. This is a great expository on how powerful words can be when it comes to the power of God's word to convince you. If I were teaching just on the subject of faith, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. That's the word rhema, the word that's real to you, the word that's, that's alive to you. Now this is something that's unique. I, I saw this years ago. Never heard it taught on. I thought it was real unique. Only the Word of God has the inherent ability in it to convince you of the reality of something you cannot contact with your senses. Now let, let me illustrate it like this. Say I were to come in this morning. I came in on Sunday morning. Lee and I sat down. We were introduced by the pastors. We greet everybody and we say, now here we are. We're going to be here for 10 meetings. We're going to be here tonight. Or tomorrow night, Tuesday, Tuesday night, Wednesday, Wednesday night, Thursday, Thursday night. Now, we've brought with us, all the way from Galveston, an invisible friend. His name is Bob. He came in and he sat down right here. He's sitting right here tonight. Now, we're going to go all through the week. We're going to teach on Bob. We're going to talk about why he's invisible, how hard it's been on him to be invisible, how it's affected his marriage, his finances, everything about his life. And so we're going to have the big Bob conference. 
So you're interested. You think, okay, well, praise God, we'll come. And so every once in a while you strain to see if you can see Bob. And, uh, you know, there's always a real spiritual one among us. I think I can see him. No, no. You. Anyway, at the end of the week, we close the Bob conference down, and you're walking out the parking lot. Now, you're going to be walking out the parking lot, you're going to say this. What a stinking waste of time. There ain't no invisible man named Bob sitting in that seat. No matter how long I took to explain and talk about Bob, no matter how long, how much verbiage I used to describe him, no matter how many adjectives I used to paint the picture of Bob, your mind will not accept the reality of Bob. Did you know that? You say, why? Because it's just my words. It's just my words. And my words do not carry the power to convince you of the reality of anything you cannot contact with your senses. But there's other words, like Jesus, like heaven, like the Holy Spirit, like the Father. There are other words that we use that are not of human origin, but they're of the Word of God. And what is unique about the Word of God is its ability to cause you to have a reality of them even though your senses give you no reality whatsoever. That's called faith. That's essentially, that's what faith is, is your ability to embrace the unseen and accept it as reality. Saul heard in David faith, something he had lost. He could have looked at this guy and said, he's the tallest, he's the strongest, he's the best with the spear." He's the best with a sword. He's the best at military tactics. But this kid over here is the only kid that's got any faith. So he's our only hope. Now notice. How am I doing? Still good? All right. Still with me? Say amen. All right, I'll keep going. Here we go. It says, And Saul armed David with his armor, put a helmet of brass upon his head, and also armed him with a coat of mail, and David girded his sword upon his armor. And he essayed to go, for he had not yet proved it. David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off of him. Now let me, this is something that we really, man, I wish we would have emphasized, and there's some ministries I really wish would have emphasized this when they were here. That is this. You don't get to a particular level in faith where you become dominant and everybody else is subordinate. You say, now what do you mean by that? You can be born again and only have been taught the Word of God for a week or two and still have enough faith to move a mountain. Faith is not based on how many years you've been serving God. Faith is not based on how deep your prayer life may be. Faith is not based on any type of heritage that you may or may not have in the gospel. Faith is based on what do you believe? What has God empowered you to believe? And, you know, people write all types of books about being healed from different diseases, about receiving, you know, that God will receive, write a book, How to Receive a Million Dollars. And he'll have, you know, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, you give this, and you go, you go read the book, you do the same thing, and you don't get a million dollars. You think, well, so you write him a letter and say, I read your book, did exactly what you said. I didn't get a million dollars. And he'll write you back and say, well, you must have some sin in your life or some kind of character flaw. Well, that's not true. The truth is, you could believe God for a million dollars. I could believe God for a million dollars. I would be required to walk in the faith that I have. You would be required to walk in the faith that you have. But both levels of faith, no matter what they may be, can produce the same results. 
Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And all it takes is belief in him. He believed. He didn't believe in Saul's armor. He had not proved it. You don't need some great minister's faith. You don't need some, some you know, well, I'll tell you, Pastor, if I can just get through Bible school. No, no. Use what you have and use what you have proved. And if all you've ever proved is this, all I know is I came down to the church and believed in my heart and confessed with my mouth God raised Jesus from the dead. And I've been coming to church for three weeks ever since. You've proved something. You've proved that your faith that you got through salvation was bigger than the lifestyle that kept you in bondage and kept you out of the kingdom. And I've always said this. This really helps. What about the greatest miracle? It takes faith to receive a miracle. You already received it when you got born again. The Bible says if God spared not his only son, Romans chapter 8, how shall you not with us also give us all the lesser things? Everything else you ever receive from God the rest of your life after salvation is less. I'll touch, I'll touch that later this week. You'll see it a little better. Now notice this. And David, where are we here? Verse 40. David took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a scrip, and a sling with his hand. Now notice this, notice this. And he drew near to the Philistine. So he's not hiding behind some rock somewhere trying to sneak up on this guy. He takes off, he's got his staff, he's got his, he's got his bag. The scrip was the scripture that he carried. And he crossed a brook. Now when he crossed the brook, because he was, a, he was, he was an expert with a, with a sling and a stone, he picked up five smooth stones. Now, there's all kinds of wonderful teaching on five smooth stones. I mean, there, you can talk about the five-fold ministry. You can talk about the brothers of Goliath. They're, all, they're, they're great. I love them all. But in this, in this particular way that I'm teaching it tonight, I like to teach it like this. He picked up five smooth stones because that's how many fit. Not so many of y'all were looking for some deep. In, no, 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 no. One, two, three, four, five. Well, it won't, it won't hold six, so five. But the statement he's making is this, and this is where we go back to the failure thing. The statement was this. If I miss with the first one, the shot. If I miss with the second one, I got another shot. If I miss with the third one, I got another shot. If I miss with the fourth one, I got another shot. If I miss with a fifth one, I know where the brook is. <laughs> stone being a type of what? Revelation. Jesus was the stone that was rejected, the cornerstone, the chief stone. You've got to realize, listen, well, it didn't work. Do it again. It didn't work. Do it again. People are so afraid of the process of elimination, getting rid of the areas of doubt in your life as you go through that process in order for your faith to maximize the potential of what God wants you to do and what he wants you to receive. So he picks up the, 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 the five smooth stones and he begins to confront. Now he's aggressive. Everybody say aggressive. And he's confrontation. Now what happened when he got aggressive? Says he drew near to the Philistine. Next verse says, verse 41, and the Philistine came on and drew near to him. He gets aggressive. The problem gets, I've heard people say, I got prayed for last night and got worse. Yeah, you did get worse. Well, hands laid on me, God. Yeah, that's what, what happened was is you got aggressive 
You got a place where you could be ministered to through the laying on of hands, point of contact and transmission, faith to minister a release, faith to receive release, boom. What's going to happen? The enemy's going to try you out. Did you really believe you received? Here comes the Philistine. He came on and drew near unto David, the man that bare the shield before him. And the Philistine looked about and saw David, now notice, and he disdained him for he was but a youth and ruddy out of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine, now notice this, you got to, the, the devil always overplays his hand. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, little g. Go back and see, that's Dagon, all those goofy gods they worshiped. Now notice, notice. He did what? He cursed David by his gods. That's a big problem. Because David was a covenant man. David was a faith man. And David knew the promise of God that came to Abraham, I will bless them that bless you. And I will curse them that cur- I guarantee you when that big old ugly man began to curse David, David went. <laughs> You're done. You're done. Satan always overplays his hand. He always goes too far. He's not very smart. I like theological. He says he's a dumb devil. Amen. Got kicked out of heaven. Got defeated on earth. Amen. Now he's under our feet. Jesus put him under our feet. Amen. The Bible says when we see him in the revelation in which the Bible paints the picture of him that we will literally hedge him about with a hedge of thorns that he can't get out of and we will say of Satan, is this the one that caused me all the problems all my life? This dilapidated, beat up? Amen? He's defeated. Everybody say defeated. The Philistine said to David, come to me. I'll give your flesh to the fowls of the air, to the beast of the field. Then David said, everybody say last word. You like to get the last word? David said, everybody say David said. David said to the Philistine, thou comest to me with sword and a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defiled. This day the Lord will deliver thee into my hand. I will smite thee. I will take thy head from thee. I will give the carcass of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the earth, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Big G. Not that I'm going to be king, that I'm a great guy, that I'm a big faith person. No, this is going to give glory to my God. Now, he didn't take off. Run away, run away. Goliath didn't do that. Notice what the next scripture says. It says, and it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David. That confession of David incited the enemy. Here he came. But now I like this next part. It said, and David hastened and ran toward the army. Aggression, confrontation, not backing off. That's where we've got to live, church. David put his hand in his back, took the stone, slang it, smote the Philistine in the forehead. And the stone sunk into his forehead. He fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed. Woo! 
Everybody say glory. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Now, the last thing you want to do is to knock down a giant with a rock and for him to get up. When I was a kid, we had a bridge we'd throw rocks off of. And there was this kid named Larry Rimes. He was a bully. He was in the third grade. I was in the second grade. And one day I was throwing rocks off this bridge and I had this real nice rock and I threw it off the bridge and right as it left my hand, Larry Rhymes stepped out from under the bridge and the rock hit him in the back of the head and knocked him flat on his face. Well, I took off <laughs> running and nobody ever knew. And the next day at school, Larry had a big old gauze on the back of his head with a blood and I was shaking because I knew if he ever found out I was the one that hit him in the head with a rock, he's going to beat the tar out of me. Never knew. <laughs> Amen. Maybe he'll get this, this recording and then I'll be in trouble. But anyway, here's Goliath. He's on the ground. The job is not finished. Now notice this. Many times, confrontation will force you into an arena in which you're not equipped to finish the job. You're not equipped to do it. You think, well, you know, here I am. It looks like I've got a victory, but man, I, I need... Listen. It's on that field of confrontation. Now notice this. This is a powerful point. So David prevailed over this Philistine with a sling and a stone, smoked the Philistine, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistine saw their champion was dead, they fled. What is the perfect thing for whacking off a giant's head? A giant sword. Could you imagine a little shepherd's knife trying to saw that head off? That dude may wake up. Now, the Philistines, if you study your, your ancient history, Philistines were known for their ability to work with metal. Uh, uh, nations from all over the world would come to them for farming tools, for, for weapons of war, for swords, for spearheads, because they were experts at working with metal. So somewhere, probably in Gath, where Goliath was from, was a blacksmith doing what? Building a sword. Now, not a regular sword for a regular soldier, but a giant sword. You know, somebody ought to put in the Bible a scripture that say something like, uh, no weapon formed against you will prosper because the weapon formed against you will become the weapon in your hand. So they had formed this weapon for what? For an enemy of Israel to chop up Israelites. What did it become? It became a sword in the hand of David to complete the confrontation. Whack! And it's done. And it's done. Now, let me close with this. This will help you. Let me close with this. David ran, stood up on the, on the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off the head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, he's dead, he's done. They fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines. Until they come to the valley and the gates of Ekron, they wounded the Philistines until all the way uh, from Shamaram all the way unto Gath and unto Ekron. And the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines and they spoiled their tents so that not only did they win the victory, they got spoiled. 
Now notice this. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Then it talks about when Saul, Saul David go forth, he asked who he was and all this. It says in verse 57, and David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines. Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Now this, this is something I want you to see. That's pretty grotesque. It's a big head. Giants have big, they're big headed guys, you know. So it's big ears, big old ugly thing with this stump of a neck with all the gunk hanging out. The, the, the coagulated blood, and the, the windpipe, and the, uh, the carotid arteries are hanging out. And he's got this thing by the head and he's carrying it around. Now let me ask you a question. Now if I had that here and picked it up, everybody would go, ooh, that's a, but not that day. Not that day. That was beautiful. That was, whoa. That was victory. And I guarantee you, every time he'd raise that head up, those women would say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. That thing was a trophy of confrontation. It was not pretty. It did not represent comfort, but it represented victory. What is the most common piece of jewelry among Christians? Does anybody know? Cross. I bought Leah on how many crosses? Got every kind of cross you can think of. Cross, not pretty. Cross was ugly. Cross was a confrontation. But it was a confrontation for us. He was wounded for our transgression. It's not ugly. I mean, that's not pretty. It's not comfortable. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes, we were healed. That's not. The cross was a, was, a, was a horrific, brutal scene in which the God, the creator of the wood in which he hung on, died. You hold up the cross and we sing songs. You hold up the cross and we praise and worship. We wear it around our, 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 our necks as a sign of who we are. We are Christians. We are Christ-like. We are believers. The Bible says the preaching of the cross unto the world is foolishness, but unto us that are saved, it is the power of God. You say, why? Because that was not a confrontation like David and Goliath. That was the confrontation. On the cross, Jesus assumed everything that was and would be wrong. Took it upon himself. Every physical thing, every financial thing, every oppressive thing of the mind, everything that you could imagine that is negative and a drama and a crisis in the human experience, Jesus took it on that cross. Died with it. And he rose from the dead having defeated every bit of it so that we could walk in the victory of his confrontation. How can you not be aggressive in confrontation? You have to realize as a believer, now that you're living the latter part of 2020, I guess we're fixing to enter into the third quarter, fourth quarter, excuse me, 2020. 2021 will be on us. The election will be over soon. The next pandemic will come around. The next this, the next that. In the midst of it, God is beginning to stir. Wanting the church to become a confrontational force you're going to have to do it. 
I have to make a decision. Let me. All right. For years, as a kid growing up in church, I was saved when I was six years old in a Sunday school class at the First Assembly of God Church in Pasadena, Texas. Brother and sister J.R. Goodwin were the pastors. My Sunday school teacher's name was Letha Groover. She's a school teacher. She's still alive. She's 92 years old. Uh, about 20 years ago, I was preaching in a large church, and there they sat, brother and sister Groover sat right there. They were original members of their church in Farmersville. and moved with them to Pasadena. They both, both worked in the Pasadena school district. He, he was in charge of all the buses, and she was a school teacher. I got filled with the Holy Ghost around the altar with a man named Kenneth Dunn laying his hands upon me, praying for me. Brother Dunn was a soldier in World War II who ended up fighting with the guerrillas in the Philippines. It was just a man, a soldier, and a Holy Ghost man like you wouldn't believe. He'd dance all over the church with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God would move. I'd been in kids' camps. I'd been, I, went, I was in, does anybody know David Reavers, the guy that had his face blown off? I was there the first year he came back from Vietnam when his face wasn't so fixed up. So he would get up and he would preach, you know, you got to serve God or you're going to end up in Vietnam, have your face blown off like me. And so we would all run to the altar and we would make new commitments and new consecrations. You know, we'll go to the mission field, we'll do anything. We don't want to end up like Dave Reaver. You know? So I come back to the Lord years ago and I'm praying and I had made, there was a pretty strong movement of prayer, 1983, 84, began up around the Dallas area, the Rockwall area. I had made some commitments, some consecrations to prayer. I wanted to pray at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning. Hey, listen, four, I can get up 4 o'clock in the morning, go fishing, no problem whatsoever. I've got a nice boat. Duck hunting, I get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, go duck hunting because I've got to make a two-hour drive to get to my rice field. Amen. If the surf is breaking, I can get up at the crack of dawn. Pray, 4 o'clock in the morning, ain't going to happen. I prayed in a bathtub. Fell asleep in a bathtub. I prayed with my head on a stopper. Fell asleep with my head on the stopper. Wasn't going to work. So I'm praying and I'm crying and I'm having a pity party and I'm saying, oh God, I'm so sorry. I've broken my commitment. I've broken my, my, my uh, consecration. And I'll never forget how God ministered to me. God said this to me. First two words he said to me got my attention. He said this. He said, Shut up. <laughs> got my attention. He said, your problem is you make commitments and consecrations and they come come out of your mind, they come out of your emotions, they come out of the choices you make. You always fall short, you always fail. Never forget this. He said, never, ever again make a consecration or a commitment to me. What do I do? He said, you do what I did for you. I gave you my life. Give me yours. Really that simple. Little did I know I would spend 18 years in hotel rooms praying in the afternoon. I was under all this condemnation because I couldn't pray in the morning, but I could do everything else. That's not what my prayer time is. I'm more awake, I'm more alert in the afternoon. I found out that God doesn't really want your soulish commitment or your consecration. He wants every bit of your life, everything you are, every breath you breathe, every sound you make, all of your activity and movement, he wants you 100%. And when you, give you, when you give him your life, then you've made him not just your Savior. A lot of people like making Jesus their Savior. Making him Lord. You call him Lord. If you study that, now I, you know, I know this is real controversial to say this in America, but when you make him 
Lord, you're actually saying you know you've been bought with a price, not your own. You begin to realize that. You will get an aggression in you because you'll realize that that purchase did not purchase you as a slave. It purchased you as a child. And you left the human family and God's family. All the rights and privileges afforded an individual as being part of God's family. Amen? Amen. Lift your hands. Father, we worship you tonight. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your goodness, for your blessing. Thank you for the wonderful illustration of King David. How he was aggressive, confrontational, he won a victory to the eyes of many. It, might, it looked ugly and grotesque. Oh, but to the eyes in which it was those, the victory was wrought. Oh, they rejoiced. They knew that they would not go into slavery. They knew they had been set free. Father, we look at a greater victory today. That is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, in which He bore everything that was wrong with us so that we could have everything that was right with Him. Today we rejoice. We revel in the reality that we are new creatures. That we are the righteousness of God in Christ. That greater is He that's in us than He that's in the earth. That we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Lord, we're not looking to make a commitment, a consecration. We're giving you our lives as being those afforded the great honor and privilege of being alive. Last worship you. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name. And everyone says? Amen. 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 Praise God. Jesse, are you going to be able to be in some of them? Oh,